Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey guys, my guest today was a very early employee at Twitter, like uh, so early that when, when he when he joined, uh, there were only a few dozen people there. So really early employee at Twitter. Uh, he's, he's also uh, done a bunch of uh, other things, including he once owned an auto repair shop. But the reason why he's actually on the show is uh, he's got a new meditation app aimed at athletes called Lucid. His name is Jason Sturman. Uh, here we go. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Welcome, man. Hey, thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Uh, here's the question I ask everybody. Uh, how and why did you start meditating? Yep. So I was um, maybe into my second or third year at Twitter. And one of my good friends there, um, lovely lady, Michelle Gale, she invited me to attend a, a meditation class at Twitter. Now, I grew up in Texas. And the word meditation to me right away had some connotations that it was an Eastern religion thing. Um, I thought it was something maybe you sit lotus style and levitate in a cave in Tibet or something. Um, but almost as I didn't want to tell her no. So I decided to go to this class. And Were you... Uh... Like interested in her or just, no, not okay, at all. Okay. No, you're I, married, right? I'm okay, married. Okay, yeah, okay. I've been. I married my high school sweetheart. Okay, okay. Um, so, uh, but she was. She did some HR stuff at Twitter, and okay, really, it's not really like you were macking on her. It's no, just no, you were no. To be no. Nice. She actually okay. came. She she's now one of our best family friends. Gotcha. And, um, okay. But she was really interested in meditation, and uh, she got me to go to this class. And I remember walking to the class, really hesitant, thinking like. We have to change into robes or we have to understand some different language. I just had no idea. It was no, no idea what meditation was. And so I remember showing up and, and meeting the meditation teacher. And he was kind of a young, hip, white guy, kind of looked like me or someone who could be like me. And right away I noticed he had the most calm aura about him. It's just very warm and gentle and, and such a nice guy. I remember when he shook my hand. It seemed so authentic. And I remember thinking at that point, I don't know if meditation is what made him like this, but I want to be more like this guy. Do you remember who it was? I have no idea. <laughs> no idea. I never saw him again. Interesting. Um, that was my, my first taste. And he did a, get it like maybe like a 30-minute guided meditation. I remember closing my eyes and breathing. And I remember about halfway through thinking, this isn't religious at all. This isn't spiritual. And uh, I remember kind of at the end opening my eyes and, and feeling like, okay, that was something Something happened there. I remember feeling calm afterwards. And I thought, you know what? I could maybe get into this. And did you, from that moment on, pick up the habit, or were there some fits and starts? Yep. No, that was, yeah, that um, didn't didn't get, in, get into it right away. That class was offered maybe once a month or so at Twitter. And so I think I went two or three times in, uh, toward the end of my career at Twitter. And then when I left Twitter with Evan Williams to start, uh, what is now Medium. Evan uh, Williams is one of the founders of Twitter, and so you went with him to... to start a new company yeah. after Twitter, yep. And um, Ev had been really into meditation also. And so when we started Medium, we really agreed from, from day one that we wanted to have a really mindful culture at Medium, and part of that would be having uh, in-house guided meditation. And so then he um, hooked us up with a guy named Will Kabat-Zinn, who's oh, John yeah, Kabat-Zinn's yeah. son. Yes, yes, and yes. so we started bringing Will into our company three days a week to do guided meditation, 30-minute guided meditation, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And when I started practicing with Will and got to spend some time with his, his father, John, and uh, that's when I really started my own practice, and that was five years ago. And what, what has it done to you, for you? Sure, yeah. Um, gosh, a lot. It's, I'll say it's been very transformative for, for me and my wife and my family. And um, even at the, the company we built at Medium, the, the company was very 
uh, high functioning, high performing, but had this undertone of just calm and trust. And it was very human centric culture we built. And I credit a lot of that toward the meditation practice. And for me personally, um, you know, I was never really a super stressed out. I never acted out. I don't have any sort of, you know, mental disorder that I know about, um, but really came to find just a sense of, of calm and awareness in my life and kind of a, a foundation that I could return to and, you know, not worrying about what I think may happen in the future or, or dwell on some stupid mistake I made in the past, but just, this, just the ability to be here uh, felt really powerful to me. And I felt like my days were longer. I felt like my senses were sharper. And, um, and uh, I just really wasn't that stressed. Although I can say now, looking back prior to my meditation practice, um, I think I was a pretty stressed out individual and just didn't, didn't uh, it never manifests itself in super unhealthy ways. Um, but looking back, I was, man, I didn't live much of my life present mm. until I was, you know, maybe 33, 34 years old and I started uh, really meditating. Better, better late than never. Absolutely. And earlier than I did, just for the record. Um, there you go, gotcha. So, so um, what does your daily practice look like? Yeah, so it's changed quite a bit. I've been through kind of different phases and um, the first two or three years, um, I would really, uh, I would sit with Will three days a week, and then I'd probably do two or three days a week by myself, um, either using an app like Headspace or Calm or Insight Timer or Buddha 5, tried them all, and, and I like them all, and um, sometimes I just wake up early and just sit for about 30 minutes by myself and, and just breathe, and it sounds I mean, simple. like, when you say just breathe, but, like, pay attention to the feeling of your breath coming in and going out, and then when you get lost, start again? That's right. Okay. Yep. Yep. Uh, just uh, breathe in, breathe out, and um, let the thoughts come as they as they may, but try not to focus on them or hold on to them and, and let them go. And um, that practice was really um, invigorating for me. I found a definite correlation between when I practiced uh, and my ability to focus and perform at a high level at work. And when I didn't, I just felt kind of a little bit in the cloud. And, um, uh, you know, it felt good. It transformed my performance at work and at home. Um, but it was still somewhat laborious for me to, to get up and do it. Um, you know, I tell people, a lot of people ask, well, if it's so good, you know, why don't you just do it all the time and every day? And it's kind of like going to the gym. Everyone knows going to the gym is going to make you healthier, but sometimes it's hard to get there. Everyone knows eating healthier is uh, going to make you feel better, but sometimes you like sweets. Um, so it's been, uh, it's been uh, somewhat hard for me to kind of keep a regular practice. So that's how it started. And now in the last year or so, I've really been um, doing five minutes a day, uh, using Lucid, which maybe we'll talk about, which is uh, your the, new the, app, yes. my new app. Yeah. And um, in Lucid, we have two mental skills coaches who are both big believers in meditation. One is George Mumford, who's been on your show. Yes. And one's Graham Betchart, who's worked with a bunch of young athletes who are now up and coming NBA stars. Yeah. And George Mumford, for the, those who didn't listen to the show, he he worked with the Lakers and the Bulls, taught people like Kobe and Shaq and uh, and MJ. And um, so these are two very experienced teachers you have in your app. That's right. Um, in, in the athletic performance world, I think they're two of the best. Yeah. And uh, they're both uh, both big into meditation. And I talked to George and got to hear his story as an amazing story. It's amazing. And Graham has a similar one. And uh, so now my practice looks like putting my headphones in and using my app. And for five minutes a day, listening to one of those guys guide me through what we call a mental skills workout. And part of the mental skills workout, there's a meditation component every day. And uh, the, the audio and the mental skills workout is a little bit of meditation, some visualization, and some positive affirmation. We call it our MVP. All in five minutes. All in five minutes. And so that's all you're doing now. That's all I'm doing. Well, 
most days that's all I'm doing. I now have some more awareness and I'm able to sense when I think I need to sit a little bit longer. Uh, sometimes I go off into a little like nap room or break room at work and uh, do you know, 20, 30 minutes of uh, sitting and breathing and just returning to the present. Or I, I still like to use apps like Headspace and Calm and uh, to kind of get me there. But I've noticed that even five minutes a day, five or six days a week over you know, months and years can have a pretty significant effect. Oh, yeah. No, no question about it. Um, uh, th- so are you no longer at Medium or are you full-time at Lucid? I'm full-time at Lucid, yep. Okay. I left Medium after being there for four years, uh, raised a little seed money, and started Lucid. Great. Yeah. So, wh- so wh- I know this very well as somebody who has a, a meditation app um, himself. This is a very crowded space. So why did you want to jump into it? Yep. And does were you that it's crowded? And how did you think Lucid was going to be different? Sure. Um, so really, the genesis of Lucid started uh, in some ways with George Mumford. Uh, my co-founder is a friend of George, and my co-founder has a conference in which George speaks at most every year. We should you should name your co-founder. His name's Soren Gordhammer, and he started yes. a conference called Wisdom 2.0. So Soren's a, 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 a Big figure. He's a big dude. He's a tall dude. Uh, <laughs> he he's a big figure in sort of modern mindfulness movement. And he that's started right. this uh, conference that's now all over the country called Wisdom 2.0. So they have New York, L.A., uh, San Francisco is the big one every year. Yep. And I think one in Hawaii, yeah. maybe a few other things. And, and uh, so Soren will be on the show at some point. Um, uh, but anyway, so he's your partner and the two of you, he's friends with George. So the two of you that's teamed right. up. So when I left Medium, um, I, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I know that I'd been in the online publishing space working with Ev Williams for almost a decade, and I was ready to kind of take on a new chapter in my life. So when I left Medium, I started to look at the things that were important to me, and I'm a tech startup guy through and through. I'd founded some companies prior to Twitter, then at Twitter and at Medium, and I just love tech startups, and so I'm a tech guy. Uh, I'm a sports junkie. Um, I still play basketball three or four times a week and follow all my favorite teams and players closely. And meditation has become really transformative for me over the last five or six years. And so I sensed there might be something at the intersection of these three. I had no idea what it looked like. And um, I started talking with Soren, who I had gotten to know. Uh, I'd been on some meditation retreats with him. And uh, he had heard, actually through our friend Michelle Gale at Twitter, who's also friends with him, uh, he had heard that I had left Medium. And he had had this idea for some software to support the Wisdom 2.0 community outside the conferences. And to heard I was available, so he called me up and uh, wanted to bounce some ideas off me, and I was looking for something to do. So we started talking about um, technology and mindfulness. You know, it's a real big passion of, of Soren's and mine now. And um, we started looking at the landscape and definitely had no um, desire to build another headspace or build another calm. I think you're right. I think the, the space is really crowded. Um, but part of the conversations uh, always started talking about um, mindfulness for athletic performance. There had been some research done showing that even a small meditative practice can have a pretty significant effect on the court or on the field or the horse or the pool or however you choose to perform. And so I was really interested in that. I've always been really interested in the peak performance and things like this. And me and Soren started talking about it. And he said, we should really talk to this George Mumford guy. Uh, Soren explained how he brought George into his home to teach uh, his son and his basketball, his son's basketball team meditation. And he said the most amazing thing happened. He said, um, and uh, this is down in Santa Cruz in California, and he said George showed up and he invited these basketball players. And for anyway, a house full of these young, mostly African-American basketball players who would have never shown up. They probably wouldn't have shown up for the Dalai Lama, hmm. but they showed up to meet the guy who taught Jordan and Kobe their competitive advantage. And so that's when something clicked for, for Soren that I think we can reach athletes in a way that a headspace or a calm can't. Mm. And so I started talking to George and 
George told me his amazing story, and he explained that he's been doing this work for almost 30 years now. And he said, really only in the last few years have the elite athletes that he's been working with uh, been able to kind of point to him as their competitive advantage. And he says that's happened for a couple reasons. One, there's this mindfulness trend that's happening. So it's mm-hmm. becoming more accessible to talk about publicly when you're working on, you know, the organ between your ears. Right. Um, and uh, It was embarrassing for a long time. Yeah. Even when I first started getting into it in like 2009, 2010, it was like kind of embarrassing. For sure. For sure. And, you know, I remember, you know, George did a lot of work with Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson, they call him the Zen master, but yeah. it was almost in a satirical yes. kind of jokey yes. way. Yes. Um, now it's something that athletes are starting to become proud of. And so they point to George and say, this is the guy that taught me what I knew. And coupled with that, the science behind what happens to your brain, which I'm sure you're familiar with when you have a meditative practice, uh, there's overwhelming evidence now that shows that uh, a mindful or meditative practice can have a real significant effect on the literally the physical makeup of your brain, which controls your body. And so uh, the science behind it has allowed some athletes to kind of buy in and believe in it more. And so when George was telling us the story and he was saying, uh, now that he's he says he's out of the closet now, what he does, because mm. athletes can can talk about it. So he said his phone's ringing off the hook because if you're a professional athlete, you want the same uh, competitive advantage that Jordan or Kobe or Shaq or you know these Olympians that he worked with had. Um, but George is on staff with the Knicks now because he works with uh, Phil Jackson still, and Phil's the GM over there, and does some work at Boston College, and uh, he's getting older and he doesn't want to travel as much. And so when he's telling us a story, it kind of clicked to me. I think we could use technology to scale the wisdom in George's head um, uh, to a much bigger, broader global audience, uh, specifically collegiate and high school and youth athletes who um, aren't being reached by the headspace and columns and the Dalai Lamas of the world, but have this desire to be better at their sport and want that competitive advantage to be great like a Kobe or Jordan. So I want to talk about how the app actually works and sure. what's in there and all that stuff. But just a quick question. Uh, when I picked you up in the lobby yeah. uh, to, to come up here into the, our radio studio to do this interview, you were saying that you were in New York. You, you live in San Francisco. That's right. You were in New York doing some fundraising for the company, yep. you look, looking for venture capital money. Um I, I am new to this game myself of like talking to venture capitalists and sure. building a business. And the thing that venture capitalists want to hear is how does it become a billion dollar company? Sure. I have like no idea how to answer that. That's why I have people around me who actually know something about business. Right. But what is your answer to that? How does, is this a big enough market to target that it becomes a billion dollar company? Yeah. So the way we're positioning Lucid is not another meditation app. We're producing Lucid as a mental skills training app for athletes. And uh, it may be surprising, but there's nothing out there like what we're doing. And um, the headspaces and calms of the world, they're starting to sense that there could be an opportunity to work with athletes, but they already kind of have a DNA and a profile in the world that, that isn't currently connecting with the, with the demographic that we're targeting. And um, so when a venture capital asked me, uh, you know, how's it going to be a billion-dollar business? Uh, one simple answer is in the U.S. alone, there's about 36 million youth athletes. Um, and by our estimation, basically 0% of them have access to this mm. sort of training. Um, so we have a business model in the app right now. It's a, it's a membership uh, service, 10 bucks a month to train with us through our app and work with George Mumford's and Graham Betcharts of the world. And uh, that's going extremely well. Um, however, we seem to be attracting... Uh, a new breed of investor and specific, specifically venture capital investor that are really looking to do something good in the world. And so we're finding some investors that really believe in mindfulness and meditation and understand that we've uh, crafted a product that's reaching a demographic that is not currently being reached. So 
the investors I get really excited about talking with are the investors where we can think about in 10 years when a whole you know, new generation of young athletes is emerging and becoming the role models that the next generation is looking up to, you know, what will the mindful athlete look like? And we're starting to see some models of that, um, but that's the thing that's really uh, the driving force behind Lucid. And uh, in fact, when I meet with, a, with an investor now that just wants to hammer me on you know, engagement and business model and all this other stuff, it's, for me, it's an indication like, I don't think you're the right partner for us. And mm. uh, it turns out there's uh, some some very notable investors that not only want to get in this space because, you know, Headspace and Calm are doing significantly well business-wise, um, but they really want to do something good in the world. And they think that Lucid is a way they can push this movement forward in a way that's not currently being pushed. Yeah. Well, I mean, I almost want to give you money after listening to you talk, you know, the, 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 <laughs> the, the, I mean, because it, you're, you're right. These are young athletes are people who are not being reached by this message of, hey, you can train your mind. To, to, to make it, as George says, zone ready. And, right. uh, and given the outsized emotional role that athletes have in our culture, role model, uh, the, the, the position of being role model locally, nationally, regionally, that if you have all these young people who are out there, you know, uh, modeling these skills of mental fitness, that that could have a enormous inter uh, enormous like multi-generational effect uh so that's very cool yeah that, very that's cool. what we believe in and we're already starting to work with some um elite athletes in the nfl and the nba that are the role models for you know hundreds of thousands if not millions of kids and they're starting to talk about this starting to talk about lucid and we're starting to see the effect it has on uh the athletes they influence and we're also working with uh you know individual little high schools little organizations and what we found is that um, when, uh, when kids start using Lucid and start performing better, they also start acting a little bit different. Yeah. They start being okay with failure a little bit more. They start um, exhibiting self-compassion and empathy and, and all these things that are life skills that go far beyond you know, the athletic performance. But what we found is um, those personality traits are, are somewhat uh, attractive. You know, confidence is attractive. Yeah. We say that Lucid really helps build your confidence and focus. And once athletes start using Lucid and start exhibiting some confidence and, and performing better, we found that the other um, players on the team are like, what's going on with you? Yeah. you know, what are you doing? And, yeah. and Lucid is an answer to that question sometimes. And more importantly, when parents of other kids see how some kids are acting once they start training uh, with Lucid, um, it has a real uh, riveting effect on the surrounding community and environment. And uh, I feel like we're, we're doing something good in the world and it's spreading in that way. And that's exciting for us. So, so I mean, like you know, grownups talk a lot, or especially in the meditation world, you hear a lot about uh, uh, mindfulness or emotional regulation, whatever. But, but really for athletes, it's more about not losing it. Yeah. And, and people who can keep it together that is, I mean, that, that comes off as co- cool and confident. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, what we know from, from George's work over the last 30 years and Graham's work over the last 10 years is that uh, training your mind can have some really um, uh, quantifiable, trackable um, performance on uh, resulting performance on the court of the field. And so one of the things we like to talk about with our athletes is a concept we call next play speed. And the ability to... Uh, be in the middle of a play and it go either really well or really poorly and how quickly can you move on to the next play and this is something that we really believe that learning how to meditate and learn how to be in the present is kind of the foundation for this skill and so you can watch you can watch an nba game and you can see a player 
shoot a you know shoot a three pointer as soon as the ball leaves his hand. Usually they kind of, they're kind of watching it. If it bounces off the back of the rim, a lot of times you'll see the players like they sulk for a second. Their head goes down. Their shoulders go down. Yeah, they yeah, yeah. they curse themselves. You can see them being hard on themselves. Yeah. And um, and then you can watch them and you can count one, two, three, and then you can see at what point their head snaps back up and they're back in the game. And then once your head snaps back up, then it takes another couple of seconds to. Uh, understand what's changed on the court of the field while you were out of it for just a couple of seconds. A couple of seconds on a basketball court, that's, you know, there's lots of moving pieces that have changed. So that takes a couple more seconds to kind of reassimilate yourself with the court and then know where to go. And so we believe that um, having a real strong meditative practice and really channeling your uh, ability to be in the present helps you reduce your next play speed to as close to zero as possible. And so what that manifests itself is when you release a, a player releases the ball, shoots a three-pointer, Uh, A mature, mentally strong player will realize at that moment, he or she has no control over whether the ball goes in or not. And so the best thing to do is don't worry about that and worry about what you should be worrying about, which is the next play. And so you can watch a guy like um, Steph Curry is a great example of this. You see Steph launch a three-pointer, and, well, he's so good, he might already be taunting you before the ball Mm -hmm. goes in. Um, But you can see as soon as he lets go, he's already surveying for where he should go next. Um, As opposed, you can look at some younger players in the league who uh, clearly aren't as mentally tough as a guy like Steph or Aaron Gordon is is a guy that's a really mentally tough guy. And you can see they watch the ball, they sulk, and you can almost start to read when they're present in the game and when they're not. And what George would say is that, uh, you know, being in the zone is really about just being present. And for players that have experienced that, like I'm in the zone, they feel like time slows down. And I feel like the game kind of comes to them. And what we know is uh, the real secret there is, is the ability to be present. And the way to be present, train your ability to be present, is, is through meditation. So how does the app work? What if I open it up, what do I get? What do I see? Yep. So it's, it's super simple. Um, you open it up. You put your headphones in. There's a big play button in the middle, and you hit play. Every day there's a new five-minute workout for you. And the five minutes are, are usually structured with um, a little – uh, story or anecdote or some wisdom for from George or from Graham. Um, and then we go into what we call our MVP. And this is where we actually do all the, audio, no video, all audio right now. Yeah. Yep. Um, we have some uh, video coming soon. One thing that we found is that when we show young athletes, um, guys like Aaron Gordon, like meditating before a game, it can start to normalize it for them yeah, yeah, in a way yeah, that we yeah. think is going to really yeah. help push this forward. But it's currently all audio. Get a little bit of wisdom, maybe a cool little story, and then we do our MVP, which is how we train, which is meditation, visualization, and positive affirmation. And so it's a, it's a couple minutes of sitting and breathing and returning to the breath and, heart, and uh, training that ability to, to become present. And then visualization is um, not sports-specific right now, but we have kids imagining performing really well or imagining performing really poorly and starting to be aware of the feelings wrapped around those, uh, the successes or failures. And then we can help them uh, learn how to be aware of those in, in real time during a game. And then positive affirmation. One thing that um, both George and Graham have found working with youth athletes is negative self-talk is, is uh, really inhibits youth athletes from performing, probably, all, uh, probably professional athletes also. But when you have young kids that, you know, I, mean, I grew up playing basketball, and I always told myself I'm just the, you know, I'm, I'm the slow, uh, skinny white guy who just shoots threes. And that's what I'm telling myself about myself. All I'm ever going to be is a slow, skinny white guy shooting threes. And so we have um, a whole list of positive affirmations that we have our athletes kind of repeat to themselves in their head toward the end of the practice. And then the last like 30 seconds is a, is a you know, congratulations, you showed up, you did it today, you should feel good about that and show up and do it again tomorrow. How is, are the positive affirmations, do you run the risk of being a little hokey there? Um, I don't think so. Um, the way that 
the practices are, I, I realize the word positive affirmation, I kind of think of, uh, what was that guy on Saturday Night yes, Live? Stuart Smalling. I'm good enough, I'm yeah, smart enough, yeah, and doggone yeah, yeah, it, people yeah. like me. That's not how our, our affirmations sound in the app. And our affirmations are coming from you know, the Graham Betchars and George Mumford. So they're coming from respectable, credible figures. And um, they use terminology that athletes understand. They almost, they almost embody kind of a coach's attitude talking to, to, uh, to an athlete. And, um, you know, when you have athletes repeating to themselves that, like, um, it's okay to fail, you know, things like that. Like that, that doesn't have any of the hokey uh, Stuart Smalley connotation to it. Um, but having an athlete say it to himself over and over again and starting to believe that is a pretty powerful concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. One more question about uh, the business, because uh, I, I think about this a lot, the, sure. the, the, the meditation business, which some people have, by the way, mixed feelings about that, you know, that yeah. you should, should be a business. And I, you know, sure. as, as a as somebody who, you know, considers himself a Buddhist, I, it's, it's an interesting thing. Yep. But anyway, here I am, here we both are in this <laughs> business. Um, do, you, do you think is, is, the, is the meditation instruction slash technology, you know, whether it's through apps or other technology or even, you know, in-person trainings too. Is this like Uber where there's going to be Uber and then like Lyft and others just like way, way behind and trying to sell themselves unsuccessfully or or is it going to be like fast food where you have a, a, a finite number, but like not a, a not, you know, not not just one um, yeah. number of big brands. Yep. I think it'll be closer to the latter. Um, and the reason I believe that is because you can look at, uh, I think Headspace is probably the predominant, most oh, popular yeah. app right well, now. Well, the first, first mover, and they're great. And they're great. And they're great. They're a great team. And uh, we know Andy over there, and we really believe yeah. in the work he's doing. And um, But we know 
when we look at our our uh, athletic demographic, like they're not connecting with Headspace. Yeah. And I also know some people that are not athletes, want to get into meditation, but for whatever reason, Headspace, the brand, the Headspace brand, and uh, Andy's voice in the app just doesn't resonate with them for some reason. And so, um, you know, in the same way that you know, spiritual people kind of kind of gravitate toward a religion that that um, uh, that kind of resonates with them. I think there's the opportunity for. Uh, several headspaces, although I don't think it's something that becomes hundreds or thousands. I think there will be, um, you know, a small handful of leading brands in this space. Uh, I hope Lucid becomes a brand for for mindfulness for athletic performance. Um, but uh, I do I think I can really room... see it. I mean, I can see. Look, I don't know anything, just to be clear. But I can really see. I mean, just listening to you talk about the business, it sounds, it sounds awesome. Well, I think we, um, I think we stumbled into something that. Uh, even we only launched the app two months ago, so we're very early. Yeah. Um, but we are getting emails almost daily from uh, young athletes, parents, coaches, and professional athletes that are telling us about some really transformative things happening both on and off the field. And for me, that's incredibly validating. And as proud as I am of the work uh, that we did at Twitter early on and, and grew that system, and now at Medium is growing and becoming a, a more important system uh, to publish thoughts and ideas in the world, um, I've never felt like the nugget of uh, this, the the offering um, at Lucid just feels so um, uh, resonant and uh, powerful in the world, and it's a very like human centric level. You know, we're, we're hearing from from parents that say their young daughter uh, would have panic attacks before you know going to perform her ballet on the stage or something, and she heard about Lucid, and after only a couple of weeks, she's learned how to take a few minutes to breathe before mm-hmm. she performs and kind of get grounded. And not only did she dancing better on stage, but when she messes up, she's okay with it. And, um, you know, I have parents, you know, calling me in tears sometimes just saying this is incredibly powerful. So I feel like we've, um, I think we opened the door to a little mindfulness drug in a, mm-hmm. in a specific community and it's really spreading and, and working well. And so I'm really excited to see where this goes. Bravo. Me yep. too. <laughs> so let me, let me torture you specifically for a minute here. Okay. Um, uh, because, because I read some articles about you and there were some things in there that were really, really interesting. And I think kind of connect in a way to mindfulness and, yeah. and, or, and it's twin skill of compassion. Yep. Um, so there was a big article about you in this thing called holacracy. That's right. <laughs> at, which was a management-free technique that you or, or structure that you yeah. uh, guys tried to imp- um, um, use at Medium. That's right. First of all, what is Medium for those of us who sure. may not know much about it? And second, how did this? What is holacracy and how does it work? Sure. So uh, Medium is a new publishing platform from one of the founders of Twitter. And it's, uh, it's a publisher of stories and ideas in the world that are longer than 140 characters. And it's a beautiful publishing platform. It's a network of people that love reading longer form stuff. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's growing rapidly. And um, a lot of old publications are moving all their content over to Medium. It's just a better system. And so that's what Medium is, a place to share your stories and, and ideas in the world, which is the third chapter of Ev, Ev Williams' mission in life. He started, uh, he did Blogger, helped people, uh, kind of invented blogging, let people write their thoughts and ideas down on the internet, which was a new concept 15 years ago. And he did Twitter, which I assume most of your listeners uh, have at least mm-hmm. heard of. Mm-hmm. And Medium is the next chapter in, in his mission to really facilitate the exchange of stories and ideas in the world. And so we started Medium, and um, there was only a, a handful of us, five or six of us, and we'd go to six, seven, or eight, and we realized that we need some sort of structure in a company like any company does. And um, Ev, to Ev's credit, he's always attracted to, um, to 
to shiny new ways to perform better, which I think is one of the reasons he got into meditation because it was, you know, pitched to him as a way he could, uh, you know, function at a higher level. And that proved true. And um, he had a friend that was running a company and adopted this uh, crazy system called Holacracy. And uh, Ev's friend explained to him that they adopted this new system in their company and it changed everything for them. And they'll never go back to a traditional hierarchy of people with middle management and the way they operate is super fluid and everyone is very autonomous and making decisions and they're kind of just kicking ass. And uh, so Ev said, well, that sounds pretty amazing. So let's check it out. So uh, Ev and I did some research on uh, Holacracy and it turns out it was uh, founded in Pennsylvania maybe seven or eight years ago. And um, by a software developer who has, was really into how organizations are structured, how they run, how they make decisions, how they can perform at a, at a higher level. And uh, so the founders came down and did what we called a taster day. Well, they kind of gave us a taste of what Holacracy is. And uh, we said, you know what? This seems really compelling and we're going to try it. It's, um, I, I call it a crazy system because it kind of is. And it gets touted in the media as a manager-less system, which is uh, not a fair portrayal. Oh, but I kept saying that, so that's I was okay. being unfair. Well, it was that's, – that's, I think that's the number one misconception about Holacracy. Oh, okay. And there is no role in Holacracy called manager. So that is true. Okay. Whereas most companies have something called a manager. Right. But there are roles – I have like 18 of them. There you go. <laughs> there are roles uh, in a holocratic organization that very much look and function like a managerial role role, but they're not called managers. And so the idea of, of Holacracy is... So you still have a boss. You still have a boss. In fact, you have multiple bosses in most situations. Um, it's a, um, it's a, it's, it's a non-hierarchical uh, system of getting work done in an organization. And what it really promotes is a high degree of autonomy. So you want to distribute decision-making authority as far down the tree as possible. And now this is much different than most organizations. Most organizations are um, hierarchies in which the power resides at the top and at the bottom, uh, you know, there's not much decision-making authority. In fact, if a decision has to be made at the bottom of this tree, usually it has to go up through the channels to someone at, you know, upper management or executive level, and it has to go back down through the channels once a decision is is made. And usually the people at the top don't have as much information as the people at the bottom who need the decision made. And so Holacracy tries to distribute that decision-making authority as widely as possible, which takes um, a, a pretty innovative, progressive guy like Ev Williams to say, you know what, I've made an unbelievable career of knowing how to build products and grow companies and run them well, but we're going to try something different. Instead of all the decisions kind of getting bottlenecked at my level, we're going to let kind of everyone in the company just kind of make their own decisions and run fast and trust we don't uh, you know, crashes okay. car we're driving. But, but, but this seems like a recipe for chaos. Like, I'm just going to give you a tiny little example recently from within ABC News. Mm-hmm. I was supposed to go to Africa for two weeks for work, to okay. for a shoot. Um, and so it was kind of planned, and we got we, – I had to get – because I, I work for Nightline, but I also work for Weekend GMA, and um, – so I, I had to get the heads of both of those shows to be okay with it. We had to work on the budget. Uh, I had to get it okay with my wife, but that's, I guess, <laughs> sort of extracurricular. Right. Um, and then kind of toward the end of it, um, uh, we I also have to get it okayed by the people who deal with all of where where the various news anchors are at any given time. Right. Because uh, the, the, we always need to have people nearby just in case, like, George Stephanopoulos is sick. Maybe I need to fill in for him or whatever, or right. he's going to take a vacation. So somebody is, like, looking at that. Right. And – so we were pretty far along, and then the decision got kicked up to the boss uh, ABC, of ABC News, and he was like, actually, I think this is a bad time for Dan to be away. Um, 
uh, for a variety of reasons, yep. uh, t- totally legit reasons. Sure. Um, all of, all of which to say, had people lower down been pa- empowered to just make that decision, yeah. we might have gotten to Labor Day and and uh, the manager or whatever you want to call it would have sure. been like, "Where's Harris?" Right. <laughs> so doesn't uh, uh, so that's just one tiny example. Wouldn't aren't there weren't there lots of moments? Aren't there lots of moments where Ev was like, "Wait a minute, you did what?" Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, a couple points. One, holacracy gives you the ability to. Um, be very explicit about who can make which decisions. So Ev could say, in my organization, um, you know, I want I want Dan to be able to plan his own travel, and he's going to be called all over the world, do some news stories, and I want it to be okay for him to make that decision, full well knowing that he may not always make the best decision, but we'll learn. And then uh, if he makes a bad decision, we'll, that'll be learning for us, and we'll be more robust because of it. We'll put up some guardrails so he doesn't crash the car in the same way. Gotcha. Or gotcha. You, this holocratic system allows you to say, you know what? For this kind of decision, we actually need a pretty robust process, and this is the process we're going to put in place. And so holocracy doesn't really dictate, uh, doesn't prescribe how to make decisions, but it gives you a tool set to uh, let you build a system around decision-making that allows you to be uh, on one and highly autonomous and let anyone make any sort of decision with with rules or constraints you put in place. Or for some decisions, there could be a really robust, complicated process that has to go through. Um, but one of kind of the core tenets is um, when you described everyone who needed to sign off before you went to Africa, one way you could be looking at that is like kind of consensus building. You have to look around and get everyone to kind of chime in and say, okay. And what the founders of Holacracy would argue is that uh, consensus building is is usually a, um, a lot of wasted time and effort to make it might be better just to make a decision and hopefully if it's a good one it's a bad one you'll learn from it and you won't make it again yeah interesting I mean <laughs> it, I don't know if it's wasted time or effort but it's a lot of time and effort and either I, sure. I don't, I don't want to make a judgment on it but 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 I read that Medium has now abandoned Holacracy as it's gotten bigger. That's right. So does that say that the, 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 this principle does not scale? I don't think it's about scaling. I'll say the reason that Holacracy didn't work um, – well, I'll say Holacracy worked at Medium, and they learned a lot. And even after I left, they're still um, practicing a lot of Holacratic-like uh, practices um, at Medium. For example – one of the one of the things with Holacracy is the meeting structure is very there's a very strict structure around how you have meetings. It works incredibly well. Meaning everybody gets to weigh in. Uh, yeah, everyone has a chance to be heard on certain things, yeah. um, but they move very fast, and you get a lot done. And you optimize for the output of the meeting, um, and that was that was a tremendous aspect of Holacracy that they still adopt at Medium. But what we found was. Um, as we were growing and we started growing fast and adding people to the team every week, when you start a new job, uh, you already come in with some anxiety. You know, it's like, where am I going to sit? Who am I going to have lunch with? How am I going to impress my boss? And, and you know, people kind of come in with some, some nervousness and anxiety. That's just because we're humans and we join a new organization. And when you throw on top of that, that all still exists because you're new to this organization. And we have this system of structuring and running a company that's uh, you've never heard of before. It's very complicated. The actual, the rules of the holacracy game that we play exist in like a 30 or 40 page constitution, which reads like a legal contract. So you slap that on their desk and say, here's a system we use. Don't worry about it. You'll, you'll get to learn it, but it really affects how employees operate day to day. And so we found that, um, there was a real big anxiety spike when, when new people joined. And a lot of new people mature, 
uh, engineers and designers, they were attracted to a new and better system, but it was still caused a big anxiety spike. And then uh, most recently, Zappos was the biggest company to adopt Holacracy, and uh, that they made some uh, kind of ripples in the press about this new structure that a big company was uh, was adopting. Prior to Zappos, Medium was the biggest and most notable company to have done it. And so as we were hiring um, tech people in Silicon Valley, the word got out that we had this other system, and it became just a conversation we had to have all the time. I think... Oh, yeah, because you gave me a look when I said I was going to bring it up, like, oh, man, <laughs> you're going to talk about that? <laughs> Well, I probably did because it was it's in, it's incredibly hard to talk about because it's incredibly complicated, uh, and that's ultimately the reason that well, you did a good job of, of not getting overly arcane, and, well, but yeah. giving me a sense of it. Okay, well, I've, I've yeah, I've done this multiple times as we okay. hired at, at Medium, but yeah. really, even the things that I just explained to you are really scratching the surface of yeah, what democracy sure. is. So it's I'm it's a sure. very complicated system, and that complication when it's how you literally structure and run your company. Um, there's a there's a huge onboarding tax you have to pay to get someone up and running in the new uh, system. Uh. And then there's this persistent tax that you kind of have to keep working and relearning and putting into practice and readjusting. And that ever-present um, tax has started to really weigh heavily on the organization, especially as we've scaled from, you know, five people to 100 people. And in, you know, a couple years, a good portion of those 100 were really new to this. So it did create a lot of um, questions and not chaos, but it would have been a lot easier how do we say we're just a traditional organization like every other organization you've seen now let's get to work so so i guess the reason why i wanted to talk about it is not that i'm i'm interested in the um minutia of management uh theory sure. but because there seemed to be an emotional component to it because as i've read you did not like being a manager yeah. There was something about treating people as resources yeah. that se- struck you as wrong. That's right. So I was when at, I, at Twitter. At Twitter, yeah. yeah. Um, and when I when we heard about Holoxy at Medium, I was really drawn to it because it had a very um, human element to it. And so when I was at Twitter, um, I, I managed some teams, and I being always into into peak performance and wanted to connect with people. I was reading all the you know, management books. A lot of my mentors were helping me kind of become a better manager in the traditional sense of the word. And and when you think about a high output management, you can look at your team and, and view them as like resources. In fact, like the term human resources, I hate it because it's like a resource is like a coal mine, you yeah. know, which you're trying to extract some Timber. valuable resource. Right. And, you know, I look at my team at Twitter and I, I, I'm incapable of looking at them as resources. Yes, they have to be productive for my team to be successful, but they're human beings with families and stresses and emotions. And I felt like the more I attended to them as humans and less as, you know, machines that could output something of value, the higher functioning my team would be. And, and did that actually better. work or was it nice cotton candy? Sort of? Always worked. Really? Always worked. In fact, measurably. Measurably. My my team at Twitter was often touted as, as one of the highest performing teams and one of the happiest um, and uh, what did your team do? So we built internal tools at Twitter. So gotcha. we built software for everyone else internally at Twitter to make their job easier, automate what they're doing, or or make their life easier. And so, um, uh, so when I really tended to the humans on my team, I feel like that's when we performed at a really high level. And so when you know, fast forward two or three years, and I hear about this holacracy system, and it had a, it just had a real strong acknowledgement that an organization is made up of humans, not robots. And that really resonated with me. And how that manifests itself uh, in the company is, I'll give you one example. One of the things that Holacracy teaches is how to understand you might have a tension at work and how to process your tension. 
And so the way Halakshi defines tension is not necessarily a negative thing. It doesn't mean like I'm stressed out and I'm about mm-hmm. to crack. It means I realize there's a difference in what is and what could be. And mm-hmm. there's a tension there. So tension could be I have this amazing idea and I don't know what to do with it. That's a tension. Tension could be I hate my coworkers. That's also a tension. And tension could be I'm not happy with the product we built. And so Halakshi gives you this language called tensions where you go to this meeting, which is quite literally a tension processing meeting. And everyone has the ability to put their tensions on the table. And then the meetings are facilitated by a facilitator who, as quickly as possible, uh, resolves all of the tensions. And this is where uh, the, the meeting structure gets really important because, say, we have uh, you know eight people in this meeting. We have an hour. We go through and we list all of our tensions. And it's not unusual to get maybe 20 tensions on the table, maybe sometimes even 30. And the facilitator has to resolve every tension before the meeting is up. That is the rule of the meeting. Hmm. And so to resolve a tension, it doesn't mean... Uh, in Halakshi, it doesn't mean that you find the optimal solution. It doesn't mean that the tension no longer exists, but it means as quickly as possible, you identify a next step. A road forward. A road yeah. forward. Yeah. And as soon as you identify that next step, that tension is resolved for the time being, and you move on to the next one. And uh, a couple of things that relate to, to meditation and mindfulness here. To acknowledge a tension at work is a very mindful thing. To To be able to step back and think, I'm feeling stressed or I'm feeling like my shoulders are at my ears or I'm, something's not right. What is it that's making me feel this way? You know, I think without having a, a culture rooted in, in meditation and mindfulness, it would be easy just to plow through those things or try to brute force your way out of that feeling. The, but to be, to be able to just sit back and take a breath and kind of think like, what is it that's really bothering me here? And realize what your tension is and then bring it to um, a meeting where there's a system in place to resolve your tension uh, is a very human thing mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, what it caused at Medium was an incredible level of trust and respect and transparency and vulnerability at the company, which uh, I think are those are all the human elements that I think we really did good of uh, nurturing at Medium, mm-hmm. which caused us to perform better. When you trust your coworkers, it turns out you can move a little bit faster and, and make some riskier decisions. And so I really got to see the effect of this really human-centric organization on a really high-performing tech team in Silicon Valley. Uh, and But you're not using Holacracy at Lucid. That's right. Be, maybe some of the components of it, but not the actual Absolutely, strict. absolutely. But before we go, uh, you've been very patient with me, and, and this has been super interesting. But I, uh, I want to just get you to explain this little fun fact um, uh, that you owned an auto repair shop. I did. <laughs> Why? Um, Nothing against auto repair. I just didn't think that that would be in your wheelhouse. It is not in my wheelhouse. Um, In fact, to this day, uh, I can barely open the hood of my own car. Okay. If I do open the hood of my own car, I definitely can't tell you what's underneath it. So what were you doing? (laughs) I was um, coming out of a time where I had been doing some uh, freelance coding and design work. This is pre-Twitter. Pre-Twitter. I was in Texas. Um, I always had kind of an entrepreneurial kind of itch that I needed to scratch. And so I was always kind of making things in the world and playing with different ideas and um, my, uh, my dad had a, had a friend who ran this auto repair shop and he was looking to sell it. And, uh, th- he had a deal and this, the deal was about to get closed. And right before the deal closed, the whole deal fell through. Well, my dad's friend had already moved on and started a next business. And so there was the shop that was kind of looking to, to, for someone to come in and run it. And so I remember my dad came to me and he said, um, you know, I know you have an entrepreneurial spirit. You always talk about running a small business. Here's an opportunity for you to run a small business. And I said, yeah, but I have no idea how to fix a car. And so I said, I know, but we had another friend that had run a, a, a shop, was currently running a shop and looking for a new location. So I went in kind of 50-50 with this guy. Mm-hmm. Well, right after we did that, um, the uh, the audio industry stopped doing so well and, and uh, people were 
um, buying new cars, not fixing their old cars. And um, my my partner had to really maintain his shop. And so he kind of left me stranded at, at my shop. And uh, so here I was, um, maybe 23, 24 years old, sitting behind the desk, running an auto shop where people come into these things already kind of like, like their guards up. Pissed. Like they're combative. Yeah, yeah, they're pissed. yeah. Your car's not working. And they come in, and, now, and this is in Texas where these guys are these, you know, bringing their big trucks, like, you know, how much to fix the Madula Blangada on my 4x4. Four four. And, and most times, I literally had no idea what they were asking me. And so I had to kind of put on this face like, uh, let me go check. Um, I lasted at the shop for about a year. Oh, and, that's pretty, pretty good. And I will say, um, I, uh, it's a horrible idea to, to own a business in which you have no um, industry knowledge. Okay, that's, yes, that's, yes. A, that's a big learning. Yes. Um, however, that year, I think, taught me more about uh, running a business than anything I ever could have learned in any sort of MBA program or business school. And, you know, I was the, the owner, the salesman. I ended up changing tires and changing oil and doing the finances and showing up at 5 a.m. to make sure the bathrooms were clean for the customer. And, uh, you know, that was, uh, I've always been a pretty happy, optimistic, cheery guy. And that year of my life, I like to describe as the dark ages. That was not a happy time for me, but sometimes it takes being uncomfortable to really learn and grow. I think that's absolutely true. And yeah. it certainly applies to meditation. Um, sure. Jason, thank you very much. Of course. Thanks uh, for if me. People who want to get lucid, where can they do it? Getlucid.com. 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 Yeah, okay. check it out. All right, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you like it, I'm going to hit you up for a favor. Please subscribe to it, review it, and rate it. Uh, I want to also thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, Sarah Amos, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. And uh, hit me up at Twitter, Dan B. Harris. See you next time. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge. 
and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.